Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. Our Bible reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Martin, thank you. Okay. In a moment we'll pray uh, just for this particular part of our service before we do. Just to add to what was said last week about St. Andrew's. I am, as, as we announced last week, and for those that weren't here, to become the vicar of uh, the parish of St. Andrew's where we are uh, placed. Uh, just to, uh, to disappoint you, uh, some of you at least, that I'm not going anywhere. Uh, staying here, very much staying here, but the, the hope and the vision for what's to come is that um, we'll become one church together and we will have uh, a different uh, part of our campus, if you like, at the building of St. Andrews, as we said last week, 150 years of worship and prayer in that place gives what God is doing here. It adds a tremendous amount, I think, to what God is doing here. And we also will add a significant amount in terms of uh, many things to that place also. So we're excited for that. Uh, You are not at this point getting rid of me or us, um, and uh, that's certainly good news for me. I don't want to be anywhere else. I'll leave you to determine whether that's good news for you. Uh, uh, please don't tell me. And uh, we are, uh, we've invited some of our friends at St. Andrews as well to our weekend away. I know that as they continue to um, become part of this Trinity family, which is what we envision to happen, that you will welcome them with open arms. And it's amazing just to imagine there's a whole group of friends uh, yet for us to make and for us to conspire together about what it means to see the kingdom of God coming in this place. So I'm excited for that. And just do be praying for that. Um, 
Any change means loss, doesn't it? And there'll be loss uh, for them and for us as we move into a new future. We don't exactly know what that's going to look like. I would just love it if you would be praying for that. Um, and uh, that we would have wisdom as we navigate what newness God has for us. Okay. Father, we do pray even now. Pray with uh, that specific piece of news. We pray with the weekend away to come. We pray with Alpha in our minds. We pray with this, this shaking going on in our legs and in our city and in our nation. We pray for your coming, your revealing. I pray that you would put power on this message. Put power on us to receive this message. May you be revealed, King Jesus, in a fresh way today. For the sake of your glory and our good. Amen. Amen. I don't know what you are like in a crisis. One thing that I have learned about crisis and crises is that you don't really know what you're like in a crisis until you're in the middle of a crisis. Just a a little bit over 10 years ago, December, the evening of December the 26th, I've told this story before, some of you have heard this story, but it was a few years ago, bears repeating, the evening of December the 26th, year of our Lord, 2012. Uh, My wife, Amy, and I were on our way to hospital. We were on our way to hospital because Amy was with child, heavily, heavily pregnant. Now, um, we'd had a child before this week. Grace was uh, almost, or just over, just under two years of age. That's correct, Amy, just testing. Uh, You remember the exact details. uh, Grace was about two. We'd had her in California, and... The way it tends to work with these things, at least in my limited experience and and from canvassing people who have had children over the place over the years, often uh, the first child, uh, if you have multiple children, the first child, the labor can be uh, slow. We do have midwives in the room. Do go and speak to Claire if you would like more information on this after the service. But often the first labor can, often, can be slower, and subsequent labors, labors can often be sped up. Now, our first labor was very quick. From beginning to end, it was about three hours. And so when we went to the hospital for Joseph's birth, we expected things to be quite speedy. And indeed, uh, we arrived at the hospital in London, and things were moving on quite quickly. But despite that fact, we had a disagreement really with the staff at the hospital about how things were going along. And they decided that from their perspective, things weren't moving uh, forward quite as quickly as we thought they were. And so we ended up being sent home. Uh, and, you know, we trusted them in that. And, and so we, we headed home. And I've got to say, I was, I was a bit mixed about this. There was one side of me that thought, well, it would have been nice to just sort of get it done then and there. It was still relatively early in the evening. I thought, hang on, if, if we do this now, I might get home and get some sleep. But uh, we popped home uh, about 25 minutes to our house, and, uh, and, and Amy went for a bath, which is the advice we were given. And I, I did what any 
self-respecting husband would do, and I got my pajamas on and went straight to sleep. <laughs> uh, and Amy arrived back in the, in the bed, and, and she decided to go to sleep, and within what felt like seconds of her arrival by my side, she says, Johnny! And, and she uttered a series of words that no husband wants to hear. When he's in his bed at his house, I need to push. Yeah, those were the words. And at that point, a physical manifestation in my body began, shaking. My whole body started shaking. I jumped up like almost on a cartoon. I, I tried to get my, my clothes on, my trousers on. I couldn't get my own clothes on because my hands were shaking so violently. In the end, I, I got my own trousers on, my, a shirt on, and I went to try and help Amy, and I tried to get her up. But I couldn't really get her out the door because the contractions were regular. They were kind of between 30 seconds and a minute at this point, and they were very strong. In the end, I got her out of the house. Somehow, we got into the car, and, and we started driving the car. And I, in this kind of, you know, you're not thinking clearly, and in this moment, I, I chose the worst possible route to the hospital, one that went over a set of speed bumps. <laughs> now, just for those of you who have yet to go through this uh, situation, maybe if, I, if my wisdom, if my experience can manifest itself in your life as wisdom, if you're in this situation, stay clear of speed bumps. And, and Amy it was getting more and more desperate, and uh, <laughs> Amy did that. This is when I knew it was bad. She started to pray in tongues. And that, to me, suggested she no longer trusted... <laughs> What she might say if she was speaking in English. <laughs> now, you know that thing in the car? In the front seat of the car, you're on both sides. That little thing, that, that thing that you can pull down. What's it for? What's it there for? What does it do? I found out on that evening what that thing was for. It's, it's what you hold on to when you're trying to hold on to a child. And so we uh, arrived, and at one point she said, Johnny, it was probably about three, four minutes into the journey, nowhere near the hospital, and she said, Johnny, you'll have to stop. So we stopped by the side of the road. I called 999, and I began to have a conversation with the, uh, the chap on the phone, very nice chap, didn't get his name. <laughs> I said, you know, please send an ambulance, uh, and he began to talk me through. At one stage, he's, he said some words that, uh, again, I remember. He said, uh, can, you see if there's the, if you, can you see if you can see the head? I said to myself, I don't want to know. <laughs> I'm not looking. I didn't look. This is when I knew I'd failed the test. These words he uttered to me in this order. He said this, Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to calm down. <laughs> that was 10 years ago. Now, I failed that test. In the end, Joseph was born on a trolley on his way into the hospital, which was a miracle in itself. Now, I would like to think that I've grown up a little bit since then. I am now knocking on the door of 40 rather than on the door of 30. 
But I couldn't tell you. The point is you don't know until you're in the midst of a crisis whether or not you're ready, how ready you are for it. You see, that is the point about crisis. They don't give you new information. They just reveal what was there all along. Let me say that again. Crises don't reveal, don't give you new information. They just unveil, they just show you what has been there all along. Now last week we looked at this letter, this book, Revelation, the book at the end of the Bible that most of us steer clear of. And we said we're going to turn and face into this book over the next number of weeks. And we began by saying we've learned, we need to learn three things about what this even is. Because once we understand what it is, we'll understand why we should pay attention to it. We said, firstly, it is a letter. A letter from John to a series of churches caught in, this, in the midst of a crisis of their own. Struggling to be faithful to the gospel in a time of great persecution and difficulty. We said, secondly, it is prophecy. Designed to give God's perspective on events as they are. As well as to reveal the shape of things to come. And thirdly, we said, it is apocalyptic. This new word which is translated in the the letter as revelation. And that word apocalyptic simply means unveiling. Apocalyptic is what happens when the curtains are opened and reality as it is, is laid bare. Apocalyptic is is meant to produce a new way of seeing. And a new way of seeing is what is being offered to these seven churches. A new way of seeing the realities as they are in the present. And a new way of seeing is being offered to us as disciples today. And as we continue on in this letter, we find the curtain being pulled back for the first time. And here is what we see. I, John, your brother, verse 9, and companion in the suffering and kingdom, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God, And the testimony of Jesus. I, John, was on the island of Patmos. The year is A.D. 96. And John, the beloved disciple, the same disciple who laid his head back on the chest of Jesus those years earlier, now in his mid-80s, is in exile on a prison island called Patmos, this is a rocky outcrop, a small island in the Aegean Sea. Now, the Roman Empire, they would keep these rocky outcrops. They would keep them, these rock quarries, uh, so they could send criminals who couldn't be trusted. People uh, who perhaps were political enemies, enemies of the Roman Empire. This was, if you like, Alcatraz. In the first century, some of you, uh, last, last Sunday evening, I gave a series of uh, film uh, examples that none of the young people, none of the students even knew. But if you're of a particular vintage, perhaps like me, you've seen The Rock with Sean Connery. Anyway, that's Alcatraz. Now, why was John there? Well, life was extremely difficult for disciples of Jesus at this time. They were living in the Roman Empire, and in AD 67, the emperor Nero was feeding Christians to the lions. The apostles Peter and Paul were crucified during that period. They were martyred their faith, and many other Christians alongside them. 
But in AD 92, about four years or so before Revelation was written, the emperor at that time was Domitian. Now to compensate for his own insecurity, he demanded that all subjects throughout the whole of the Roman Empire be caused to worship him as Lord and God. And this was this kind of the cult of the emperor, this practice of being forced to worship the emperor was, if you like, the glue that held the empire together. And so Christians and everyone else, whoever else you worship, this is what you had to do. You had to go and throw some incense on the altar as an act of worship, to pay homage to Domitian, to Caesar as God. You had to say the word, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. For Christians whose charisma, whose teaching, whose uh, the center of their faith was the articulation of another phrase, Jesus is Lord, this was an impossible thing to say. To say Caesar is Lord was to be saying Jesus is not Lord and Christians could have no other Lord other than Jesus. So John would not do it. Neither would many Christians, and as a result, as leader of a group of people, he was exiled to Patmos. That's why he was there. And as he's there, he is, on a Sunday morning, as we're about to read, in that place of exile, presumably crying out for the people who he has pastored, whom he loves, crying out on behalf of them, considering the crisis that they face. Offering his prayers, his prayers rising up from Patmos. Do you know this? You might be exiled from your friends. You might be exiled even from your brethren, from your brothers and sisters, from your own family. You might be exiled from any meaningful contact, but you are never exiled from God. You're never exiled from the presence of God. John, in this place of exile, his prayers rise up as incense before God. It's an extraordinary thing. And as that's happening, God manifests a greater vision of the heavenly reality to John. He says this on the Lord's Day, verse 10. I was in the Spirit. Some of you experienced this this morning. I know you're in church, and is it great to be in church? Nice to be in a churchy building, isn't it? It's great to be in church. But Oh, it's great to be in the Spirit. I'm happy to be in church, but ah, it's much better to be in the Spirit with God's people, ideally on the Lord's day. I don't know how you do the Christian life without being in the Spirit regularly with the people of God on the Lord's day. I need it. To be here with you, as Nick said, gathering with God's people and being in the Spirit, it's beautiful. Now, John, though he couldn't be with the people, he could be in the Spirit. Do you know that wherever you are, whenever you are, you can be in the Spirit? Do you know when you are at your workstation, when you are teaching that class, when you're at, in a lecture at your university, when you are playing sport, when you are doing absolutely anything, you can be in the Spirit. And the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God lives in you. So John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He was worshiping in the power of the Holy Spirit. On the Lord's Day being Sunday, 
And as I said, no doubt he's been praying and crying out to God. And in that place and from that place, he receives a vision. This is interesting. The context is crisis. He knows he needs something. What does God give him? John is a pastor, presumably. The new perspective on how church should be run. Purpose-driven first century vision. The first edition. Nothing wrong with purpose-driven this or purpose-driven that. Nothing wrong with it at all. But what John receives, what John needs most, is not a strategy on how to implement change in the seven congregations that he's overseeing from a distance. Not a new website. Not a way to motivate the staff team. (laughs) Not even... Perspective on how to run a more effective giving campaign. What John needs is a bigger vision. A new vision to capture. He needs his attention captured for Jesus. And so Jesus captures John's vision with a new vision of himself. This is the first major vision in the letter. There are seven major moments where Jesus breaks through in this letter. This is the first of them. What we're being given, what John is being given, is the most important unseen reality of the present. This is key. The most important unseen reality of this or any other moment is the unseen reality of Jesus Christ. That was good. The most important unseen reality in your life is not where the next paycheck is going to come from. That is important, I grant you. But the most important unseen reality is Jesus. Who he is, what he is like, where he is. That is what matters. John receives the vision of Jesus, but it's not the vision of Jesus we used to see. Let's take a look at what he sees. Verse 12, I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. We will stop there for now. I turned round to see the voice. What a phrase. To see the voice. And when he did, he, what he saw was not just the voice, a disembodied voice, but a person. And the person he saw was the same person he had known in Palestine some 60 years before. He was able to recognize the continuity between the Jesus he knew then and the Jesus he saw. A bit like one of those post-resurrection experiences where Jesus is different but the same. And so John sees Jesus and he recognizes this to be Jesus. Jesus, the same, but different. How is he different? He's bigger. He's bigger. He's enormous. Not just in scale, but just in intensity. I saw one like a son of man. 
Well, let's begin there. This phrase literally, this simply Aramaic term means human being, but it means much more than that too. This phrase is actually drawn from Daniel 7. Some of you read that, another apocalyptic book. Same kind of genre, all about unveiling. And in that book, what we see, what's being unveiled again, is a picture of one like a son of man. The ancient of days is present, and he gives one like a son of man all dominion and power and glory and a kingdom. What is being revealed in Daniel 7 is the central figure in all of history. And what we're finding is that that one is one like a son of man. This vision of Jesus is picking that up and saying, this is the one. This is the central figure in history. Jesus is the central figure in all of history. Central to John's crisis is a person, and that person is Jesus. And this Jesus is clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. Now, this robe here is a priestly robe. It's the robe of a high priest like the one that Aaron would have worn in the presence of of God. The glorified son with the long priestly robe reaching down to his feet is the great high priest. What is a priest? A priest is a mediator, one who stands between, who connects God and man. In Latin, the word priest is pontifex. Pontifex. And that word is a technical engineering term. It means bridge builder. The great high priest is the one who bridges the eternal, unbridgeable chasm between God and creation, God and man. And he does it by being both God and man. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus makes it possible to access the presence of God wherever you are, however you are, because he belongs on both sides of the the chasm. And this bridge, this Jesus is the priest, he's also the king. This is a kingly robe. This is the one who stands and who has ultimate authority over all things. And he has a golden sash around his chest. Now, when a belt or a sash was worn around the waist, that is an image of work that needs to be done. But when a a belt or a sash is worn around the, the chest, That is an image of work that is already complete. In other words, the vision of Jesus we have here is that Jesus has finished his work. You know, this is really important because often we behave as Christians, certainly I do, on, on the reg every single day, as if I'm kind of having to complete the work that Jesus left undone. Rather than working from from his completed work, continuing on from the completed work Jesus did. You know, there is a reason that on the cross, the last word that Jesus uttered, uh, it is finished. I've done it. I've finished my work. The work is finished. That should give you and I a completely different perspective on what it means to operate in the world as a Christian. Not a frantic striving, but a peaceful, confidence-filled activity. Now there's more in the vision. I'll just 
skate through this relatively quickly for the purposes of time, but we find that his hair, the hair on his head is white like wool. Very strange image, as if Jesus is aging before his time. Actually, this is an image of wisdom, a picture of wisdom. You know, Jesus is wise, the God only wise. He's the one who sees what's really going on in his church, sees what's really going on in the crises of the culture. He sees what's happening in your life, in any life, in any family, any human institution. White hair is also a picture of purity. Tap yourself on the back if you have white hair. Vision of purity before us this morning. Praise be to God. This one who rules and reigns can be trusted because he is wise and he is pure. Now his eyes are like blazing fire. This means that his gaze penetrates the surface. You know, he can see through the masks. He can see through the defenses. He can see through our attempts to do life on our own. To hide ourselves from one another and even from him. And this is good news, though, because he sees beyond the surface, but also uh, his gaze is pure because he is pure. And he is not only the one who sees, but the one who purifies. What he sees, he makes pure. His eyes are like fire. Fire is refining. And what he sees, so he purifies in us. His feet were like bronze glowing in a, a, a furnace. Now, Again, an image here taken from Daniel. In Daniel, this is a picture of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, God gave, gives him a vision at night, and on his feet are uh, alloyed. There is a, vi- a vision of clay mixed with iron, which is all about the insecure foundation of his kingdom. But Jesus' feet are burnished bronze. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, incomplete. Subject to decay will end. The United Kingdom will end. The Roman Empire did end. The United States of America will end. China, as we know it, will end. Russia, every human kingdom will end. The only kingdom which is unshakable, which will never end, is the kingdom of Jesus. You know that the church, the kingdom of Jesus, has seen off the Roman Empire and every other empire since. Even Nero and Domitian could not crush the church of Jesus Christ. And John is wondering at this point, how is this going to happen? How is the church going to survive this persecution? And yet here, 2,000 years later, the church, we are witness to the fact that the church has. Because Jesus' feet are secure. Now his voice is like, The sound of rushing waters, a picture here of power, authority, a picture of peace. His right hand, he holds the seven stars. The stars here speak of the seven messengers or angels of the churches. Jesus walks among the churches, but he also holds messages for the church. There's another picture here as well contained in this vision of stars. At that time, seven planets were known. And people thought that all of life was under the control of these seven planets. And it's as if Jesus is saying, no, Reality is not governed or defined by these seven planets. Don't consult a table for astrology. Consult me. The future is in his hands, as as my cousin sang some time ago. He's got the whole world in his hands. That's the vision here. That's the picture. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. 
Now, uh, one scholar, William Barclay, notes that the sword, this sword is a, it's not a large, it's not a long sword, it's a tongue-shaped sword. And it was used for up close and personal combat. This sword, this double-edged sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus, it's connected to his words, the things that he speaks, is for up close and personal combat. And it cuts close. It cuts Deep, his words are sharp, designed to cut through all that opposes them. They divide good from evil and establish righteousness, right living within us. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. A face like the sun, a picture, a vision of power, of authority, of divinity. So it's no wonder that John falls to his face. Just as Isaiah did many generations before. Just as anyone through scripture who's had a revelation, an unveiling of the true identity of God. John is undone. He falls before Jesus. And of course, the message is, do not be afraid. Which is easy for an angel to say. Easy for Jesus to say. Don't be afraid because I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I hold the keys to death and Hades. In other words, the thing that you fear the most, John, the end of your life, the end of the church, I hold the key to the greatest enemy. And I've triumphed over it. Don't look at the thing you fear. Look at me. Look at me. I have that thing you fear the most is in my control. I have it in my hands. So what? What is the significance of such a vision for us today? Well, what was the significance for John? Well, for John, marooned on Patmos, unable to pastor his congregation by Zoom, to influence them by WhatsApp, only able to pray his prayers and send a letter in hopes they would receive it and join him in this vision. This unveiling of Jesus, this unveiling of this deeper reality of the picture of what was really going on, the picture, the unveiling of the true essence of reality brought him great confidence, comfort, and hope. Now, we may not be in quite the same situation as John at the moment. And nor, I would say, are our churches in exactly the same situation that the seven churches to which John writes were in then. And yet, what we are most in need of at this time is surely the same. Do we not need, in the crisis that we face, do we not need more than anything else, not new strategies, not new programs, not new agendas, but more of Jesus, a bigger vision of Jesus? Yes, the manifest presence of Jesus, but the manifest presence of the same Jesus who is bigger than the Jesus we often worship, who is the Jesus who fits in our pocket, who we bring out on a Sunday, sing some songs to, and then stick back in the pocket for the rest of the week. We need the Jesus who stands before us and terrifies us. Because he's so large, he's so enormous, his 
capacity and his power and his authority and his dominion and his rule and his reign is eternal. And his perspective is unlimited. And his gaze is, is uh, unsearchable and everything about him is unmatched. We've domesticated him. In the same way that we domesticate a pet and stick it in the corner, maybe walk it every day. This is Jesus, and oh, but God would birth a vision of Jesus for the church again. I need this. My vision of Jesus is so small, and perhaps yours is also. Could it be that at this moment of crisis, the shaking that has been going on in society, the, the, that we see before us in myriad ways, I'm not going to sketch them out again and bore you with that so many times. But the shaking as well in the church. As we've seen, a pandemic does not reveal new information about the discipleship in the church. It simply reveals what always was the case. Could it be that what we need more than anything else is a fresh vision of Jesus, a bigger vision of Jesus? I simply ask you this, this morning, the 15th of January, 2023, how does your vision of Jesus stack up with this one? Mine pales in comparison. What happens at the heart of every single renewal of the church, every revival of the culture, which comes from the renewal of the church, is fundamentally this. In some way, somehow, Christians are given a bigger vision of Jesus. The first thing that happens as a consequence of that is they recognize their sin. Because they've seen Jesus. That leads them to their knees in repentance, and as a consequence, God does a dramatic transformation. I want you to know, I am praying for that, for myself, firstly, for each of you, for our church, for the church in this area, across this diocese, beyond, and for our world. And so that's what we're going to ask for as well, just now. Would you stand with me? Now... I have absolutely no way to produce this, and neither do you. But I think there comes a point when we simply need to recognize that we have nothing whatsoever in our hands to be able to do anything of any worth and simply become before him and ask. And this may be a moment for you just to say to him, Lord, I confess to you today how small you are in my eyes. I confess that I don't really even trust you to be able, to be capable to bridge the gap between me and God. I feel that somehow I am unable to enter God's presence because of my unworthiness. I'm not trusting you to be the great high priest. I'm not trusting that your blood 
covers my sin. I'm not trusting you. And so I'm hiding from God like Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, if that's you, just come before him today. See Jesus. See him. See his blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Receive now by the Holy Spirit. Receive the value of his sacrifice on the cross at Calvary. Receive it. Jesus, be bigger today than our unworthiness. Maybe Jesus is not in your mind bigger than your sickness. You don't trust him either to heal you or to be present in it with you, transforming you through it. Today, reach out. Ask him. Jesus, reveal yourself. Would you be bigger? Bigger. Do you believe that Jesus is bigger than your fear? Bigger than your fear. Your fear of abandonment. Your fear of being shamed. Your fear of being alone. Your fear of death. Jesus, be bigger. Be bigger. You are bigger. Unveil. Jesus, release revelation. Just release more of Jesus. Jesus, we love you. We love whatever we've seen of you, we love. We pray you'd let us see more. That we might love you more.